The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to study about the office of the pastor today. Uh, In the beginning of the series, I told you, and I've said this a few times, the church is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I was raised in the church. The church has been my life's work. Uh, when I was just a few days old, as I've mentioned, the first public place that I was taken after leaving the hospital was to the church, and I've been in the church ever since. I, I feel a lot like the prophet Samuel when his mother Hannah delivered him to Eli at the tabernacle, she said, you just keep him here and you raise him and train him. And I kind of feel like that's what's happened to me in the church. Throughout my life, I've held many, many different positions in church work. I grew up in church. I started teaching when I was only 18 years old. I worked in music ministry for 30 years When I was 25, I was ordained as a deacon. I was in that ministry for more than 20 years. And during that time, while I was in deacon ministry, I was also preaching in the church. And now for these past 19 years, I've been pastor here of Berean Baptist Church. I followed in the steps of my father, who was a pastor for 40 years. And so the church really has been my life. Uh, It is my distinct privilege to occupy this office and to have the responsibility of being the shepherd to one of the Lord's New Testament churches. And I know this, that I am where I am by the grace of God. And all that I am is by the grace of God. And if I were to give you a complete history, if I were just to go down just many, many different things that have happened in my life, you would, I think, understand why that I feel the providential hand of God has been upon my life, and he is the one who led me here. But I don't feel necessary, that it is necessary for me to rehearse all of that information for this sermon today. But I can tell you that when I became the pastor of this church, it was after a matter of intense, intense, concentrated prayer. And I asked the Lord whether he wanted me to assume this office, whether it was the right choice to accept the call to be the pastor. And because of the unique circumstances, just the way that the Lord miraculously intervened, uh, he orchestrated every move. I knew that there was no other choice that I could make but to do what the Lord has called me to do here. You've, you've heard me preach many times about God's providence, about how God may manipulate hundreds, perhaps even thousands of different events all at the same time to make things like this happen. And I, I, I couldn't even tell you how far back this goes. I do feel a, much like the Apostle Paul who wrote in Galatians that he was separated from his mother's womb uh, to, uh, as to, to work in the ministry. And that's the way I feel sometimes that from the very, very beginning that this is what God 
wanted me to do. This is, this is God's will, that God ordained this, and God has me in this place by his will. In the many years before I became a pastor, I, I was a follower. Though I, I was in many different leadership positions, I've always been a follower of pastors, and I was glad to do that. I think that people in the church uh, should submit to their pastor. That's what the Word of God teaches. They should accept the authority that God puts over them. And I was that way. I was happy to live under and obey the authority of the pastors that were over me. But then 20 years ago, God saw fit to change things and He made me the bishop, the overseer, the one who is in authority in this church of this congregation. But I still haven't forgot this, that I am a follower. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd of the church. I am his under-shepherd. I am to follow him. He is the head of the body. He is the authority. He rules in all things. And it's only my responsibility to help to enforce his authority by, by teaching his word. And I have no other authority than what is granted by his word. There isn't an organization that functions well without leadership. Naturally, if we're going to discuss the Lord's New Testament church, we would have to come to this most important part of the way that the church operates, and that is to speak about the pastor, what what the pastor does, and how critical that the pastor is to the organization of the church. Now, one thing I would be quick to tell you, just right up front, that the church can exist without a pastor. It's not necessary to have a pastor, uh, not necessary to have a pastor to be a church, to have a church, but I can tell you this, a church does not function well without a pastor. And unfortunately, it doesn't function well with a bad pastor. So we must be aware of that, and we must be careful about how we carry on God's work in the church. The pastor's job is a key component to the way that God blesses his people. So in these next messages, I would like to discuss with you uh, several aspects of the pastoral office. This includes the calling of a pastor and his duties, We will discuss the qualifications of the man, and perhaps we'll even touch somewhat upon the respect that's due the man because of this office. Now, I'd like for us to look in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this is where the Apostle Paul teaches Timothy about pastoral leadership, that the pastor is the one who will guard and will guide the spiritual livelihood of the Lord's church. So the apostle writes in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse number 1, he says, This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. I want to stop there for just a moment to comment on this phrase, if a man desire the office of a bishop. There we see in the verse that the apostle refers to the uh, bishop, and that is one of the terms that is used in the New Testament for this office. The other term is elder. So the pastor is referred to also as the elder of the church, and these three terms are used interchangeably throughout the scriptures, the bishop, the pastor, and the elder. They're used interchangeably, but they aren't precisely the same in meaning. They have different applications 
to the function of the office. Uh, When we speak of a pastor, the pastor is the one who has the task of shepherding the flock, who tends the flock, who takes care of the welfare of the people. And the, the pastor is the most common name that we have. That just simply means the shepherd. The pastor is the shepherd of the church. Bishop is another term that's used. That's a more technical term. Uh, bishop is about the work of administration. It's the same word that we see translated as overseer in Acts 20 verse 28. And so a bishop is one who superintends the work of the church. But then there's this third term, and that is the elder. That's also a common term, and there are many churches, in fact, that prefer to use elder rather than pastor. And it's perhaps a little bit more formal than the other terms. Uh, Some churches will even say presbyter instead of elder. Uh, That's a transliteration of the Greek word from which we get elder, and, and elder also comes from originally from a word that means priest. So elder, that's a term that will often be used, and that generally refers to the uh, the respect of the office. So we can sort of set it down this way and remember it this way, that pastor is for nurturing, elder is for respect, and bishop is for oversight. Now Paul says here that a man who desires this office desires a good work. It is a good work. And I have to mention here as well that it is work. Whatever else you may think when I I say work, you need to be understand need to understand that a pastor's work is tedious. A pastor's work is very difficult. And I don't say that in a complaining way. I'm not asking for any sympathy or anything like that, but the pastor's work is demanding work. And if you had to deal with some of the people that I deal with, you'd understand very well why it is so demanding. But the pastor's work is done alongside of the people. And really, a pastor's not to be held up above the people. I don't think a pastor... Uh, should be one that runs around in his dainty clothes and his robes and who is an effeminate man who doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Uh, A pastor is a man who must work alongside of his people. Sometimes a pastor's work is very sweetly rewarding. And then at other times it's disappointingly harsh. The pastor must always have confidence in the Lord while at the same time being cautious of some people. Well, Paul goes on here to discuss pastoral qualifications. I'm going to set those aside for today. We're going to leave it for another time. We'll comment on these as we go on through our study. But let's go on and read the scriptures here, what Paul says. And uh, now in verse number two, he says, a bishop then must be blameless. That is, the pastor must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare 
of the devil. Now as we read this passage, Paul's instructions seem to be more about the man than it is about the office. The man must be one who's fitted for the office. He must be someone who's capable of ministering effectively. And so the Lord has in mind a certain type of man, a man with a special type of character. Uh, He has in mind the knowledge of a man. Uh, That would be what you know about the Word of God and many times even what you know about life in general. Um, It has to do with the demeanor of the man. How does he act? And, of course, here also about his reputation. Now, when we think of the duties of a pastor, we'll, we'll see those in some other passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Again, I say we'll, we'll look at that more as we go through the study. But today we're going to look at this in a little bit different way. Uh, I want to, to talk about, first of all, the call to the office of the pastor. The call to the office. How is it that a man becomes a pastor of a church? How does that happen? Well, it's not by accident. Although it may be in some churches, I'm not sure. But it's not by accident. Uh, there are some who think that being a pastor is just simply a career choice. Just like choosing any other type of job. When the job fair comes to school, when it comes to the high school, that uh, a pastor might show up and come and present his work the same way that a policeman or a fireman or a mechanic or a software engineer would tell students about the type of work that he does. Well, is being a pastor just another job? Is it just something that someone might choose to do? Well, I'd like to be asked that question sometime. I've never been asked to go to a public school on their job day and explain to them what I do. But I would sure like to do that because if I could, then I would tell them that this is the one work that is chosen by the Almighty God. That the man doesn't choose this for himself. This is God who chooses the person who will pastor one of his churches. And that would be a great time to show students how that God superintends the selection for his people. And if it weren't for God's providential hand, I don't think that there's anybody in his right mind who would want to be a pastor. So you wouldn't be able to go to to a school and present uh, being a, a pastor from a worldly, secular standpoint because of all the things that go with it, you simply would not want this job unless God has done something to impress your mind uh, that this is the work that you should do. A person would not want to be a pastor if you're looking at this from a New Testament historical sense. Now, I know that there are many pastors of churches that we can say are not New Testament historical type pastors. And and they're not in the office because God is the one who has chosen them. Now, some churches have pastors that have done nothing more. They've just simply made a career choice. A little boy decides he wants to grow up. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I'd like to be the pastor of a church. Probably none in your families have ever done that, but uh, somewhere, somehow, there might be some child who says, you know, I'd like, I'd like to be a pastor. They see pastor, being a pastor, as just a job. And this is just another way that you can make money. I mean, it's just as if preaching a sermon is no different than changing oil in a truck. Some do exceptionally well being pastors. That is, from a financial standpoint, 
they aren't necessarily concerned with truth. And so what they do is they, they turn being a pastor into a wealth scheme. And we see this happening in churches across our country today, especially in many of the charismatic churches. This is what happens in the word of faith churches, that there are men who become pastors of churches and suddenly now they've got diamond rings on every finger. Now they've got nice fancy cars that they drive. And you might have even heard some of the criticisms that are made about pastors that wear $5,000 pairs of shoes. That was in the papers not too long ago about pastors that spend extravagant amounts of money on their wardrobe. And even some you've seen in the papers that have their own private jets. Well, we all know the money comes from somewhere. That money comes from somewhere. And that money comes from the pockets of the people who have been told that the more you give, the more you will get. The more you give, the richer you will become. And that is true. For one person, the pastor. The more you give, the richer he will become in those those scenarios. So some choose just to work their way into the pastor's job because they see there's money that's involved with it or they think that it's easy, there isn't much work to do. That all that a pastor really needs to do is just prepare a 30-minute sermon on Sunday Well, mine wouldn't be 30 minutes. You'd have to be a little bit longer than that. 30-minute sermon, once or twice on a Sunday, and that's about all that you need to do. Then the rest of the time, you can go and spend at the golf course and just have a good time there. Well, they look at this as being a career choice, just like you would choose to be an EMT or some other type of job like that. But the historic New Testament pastor didn't serve the church for money. Now, admittedly, this has been a problem since the very beginning. The Apostle Paul talked about this. He warned against false teachers. He warned against those that would make merchandise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He warned about those who would preach only for money. In fact, we find it right here in verse number 3 of this text. He said, a man who would be pastor could not be guilty of, uh, not be greedy of filthy lucre. Not be greedy of filthy lucre. Now, some translations say, not a lover of money. But the King James translator said it in a much better way, with with more emphasis. They say, not greedy of filthy lucre. And it sort of gives you the sense of, of just a creepy disgust with somebody that would flash their wealth, their Rolexes and their gold chains, that there should be that kind of disgust for a preacher that that just was in this thing, thing for money, greedy of filthy lucre. Well, the New Testament pastor needed a much different motivation than money. He needed a different motivation than power and prestige because there was no money to be made. Christians were poor. I mean, Paul said there's not many mighty, there's not many noble that are called, and so New Testament pastors didn't spend much of their time, hardly any at all, not for the most part, laboring among those that are princes and among the wealthy. And if prestige was a motivator, that wasn't going to work either because Christians were not socially acceptable. Christians were the outcasts. They were the off-scouring of the world. Pastors were rogues. Pastors were menaces to society. They were 
leaders of a subversive movement as far as unbelievers were concerned. And so it was thought that the best way to kill the movement is to cut off its head. And so pastors became first in persecution. They weren't famous. They were infamous. They weren't respected. These are people who need to be eradicated. And so what did the Romans do in their efforts to eliminate Christianity? Well, the first thing that they did was to go after leaders. First, they went after those that were the head, the authority among the people. We read in the New Testament that Herod killed James with the sword. Of course, he was one of the, one of the apostles. And in that same chapter, chapter 12 in the book of Acts, we see there that he put Peter into prison with the intention of executing him. We know or understand that Paul was beheaded. And then later, Peter was warned by Christ that he would be crucified. Let me, let me show you just a couple of places in Scripture about this. If you want to turn your Bible to John chapter 21, uh, this, this is after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And this is when Jesus had that famous discussion with Peter when he, for three times he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And this was part of that conversation. If you look at verse number 18, I think we find a little bit of a cryptic message to Peter. John 21, verse number 18. Verily, verily, Jesus is speaking. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young... Thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. There are many good Bible teachers, Bible expositors, who believe that this is a warning about crucifixion. And the Lord is telling Peter here that one of these days, Peter, when you're older, you're going to be picked up, You'll be carried against your will. And then your hands will be stretched out on a cross. And you will be crucified. Now tradition says that Peter was taken to be killed. That he was crucified. But he asked that he not be crucified as Christ was crucified. Rather, he asked that he be crucified upside down. I don't know if it happened that way. But I am quite sure by looking at this scripture, I do believe that Jesus was foretelling Peter's death by the hands, at the hands of his enemies. And then in another place, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus warned James and John about what would happen to them. And you could turn there if you like, Matthew 20 verses 22 to 23. James and John were questioning Jesus and they were asking about positions of authority in Christ's kingdom. And they wanted to be placed above the, the other disciples. All of them were jockeying for their position. And James and John were the first to get to Jesus. And they asked, uh, can we sit, the, either of us, on your right hand or on your left? That is, on the throne when you come into glory. And this is what Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus answered and said, ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom 
it is prepared of my father. Now the attitude that James and John had about what the Lord had called them to do is that we are seeking our places of prestige. We're looking for places of power while the Lord comes back here and talks to them about death. They wanted thrones and he's offering them coffins. And so he, he's using a persecution and death when he, when he talks about his baptism, what he would be baptized with. And that baptism is his rejection and death. And he's telling them that this is the lot for those who will be preachers of the gospel of Christ. And most often down through the history of the church, this is exactly what happened. The preachers were taken, the leaders were taken, and they are the first in persecution. And so we find throughout history that the Lord's men were hotly pursued. Uh, I just said they killed James with the sword. Herod killed him. John, uh, the tradition there is that he was boiled in oil and then sent to the rocky, barren island of Patmos to die. And all the other apostles died as martyrs. I think we could safely say that not too many people were excited to be pastors of New Testament churches. It wasn't easy service. We're not talking about fame and money. We're not talking about fortune. And these, again, are the same scenarios that are repeated throughout the centuries, the history of the church. Our Baptist forefathers died under horrible persecution during the Middle Ages. And today, across the world, this still happens, that some are suffering immeasurably for the cause of Christ. But we don't see it so much here. We don't hear so much about it, but it's going on uh, in the rest of the world. I mean, my goodness, right, right in Canada, they're arresting pastors and putting them into jail. Well, we have to ask the question then. If it's not fame and fortune, if it's not, if it's not uh, becoming popular, if it's not money that drives someone to become a pastor of a church, then what is it? Why would you want to do this? Why would anyone pursue this? Why would anyone desire it? As, as Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if any man desires this office, why would anybody desire it? There doesn't seem to be anything there that has any desire. So what is the motivation for it? Well, the answer is that it's not in man. It's not in man. It starts with God. It's God who motivates the man. It is God, as the word says, who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's God who puts that desire into a man's heart. And when he calls, the man will answer that call. Now let me just talk to you about the call today. It has three parts to it. I'm just going to talk about two of these today. There are three parts to the call to be a pastor. The first one we can say is the inward call. God reveals his will to the man by speaking to him inwardly. There's an impression on his mind. This is when he recognizes that the Holy Spirit is speaking to him and moving him. Now, if you just turn a couple of pages over in 1 Timothy to the first chapter, Paul says in verse number 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul was sure that this was the Lord's work in him. He couldn't mistake this. And I don't think we can either after we read Paul's story. 
when we see the supernatural experience on the road to Damascus where Paul is spoken to by the Lord. There we find his call to salvation and then subsequently a call to the ministry. Now, if you look at Paul's account in Acts chapter 9, you'll find there that there is no movement on Paul's part, either to salvation or to service. Paul, as he's on his way to Damascus, is not thinking at all about entering into the service of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that his purpose in going there was to hunt down disciples, to persecute those who are believers in Jesus Christ. So Paul is not thinking about salvation, and he's not thinking about service. The only way that Paul is going to be changed to a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God makes that change in him. And so we see in Acts chapter 9 that Paul is blinded by a brilliant light and there was nothing other that he could do than to say, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord answered that question. He sent him to Ananias to find out what he should do. And God told Ananias, you say to Paul, I have chosen him to preach to the Gentiles and to suffer for my sake. Paul told that story several times throughout the New Testament. In 1 Timothy that we read just a moment ago, he made it clear that it was the Lord that enabled him. And it was the Lord that put him into the ministry. Now when I consider preachers, many of those that I have met, preachers in our area, I think that I could say their call did not come from God. False teachers do not receive a call from God. Now, they may be called, but let's don't credit God with it. False teachers don't get a call from God. Now, the first thing that will happen with any believer is that there is an internal call to salvation. That comes first. This is where the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart, and he brings our will into conformity with God's will. And then, along with that, there's repentance and faith and salvation. God works with that same method when it comes to our service. That he issues an inward call, an internal call, and the man knows this. And and any person who's under conviction by the Holy Spirit to begin some work in the church will recognize this. God is calling me to something. God is working with me. I know that God is speaking to me. I can't explain to you how you know that. I can't tell you what that feeling is. It may be different for different people. But there's that impression that's made that you simply cannot escape. You know when God is speaking to you. I knew that when I was saved, when I was just a young boy. I knew when God was speaking to me. And I knew when it came to the different jobs that I've had in church, whether it was to the deaconship or whether it was even in leading music, that God was speaking to me. But especially when it came to the call to the pastorate, there was no way that I could escape what God was telling me. It was evident to me. I mean, I couldn't mistake what God was doing with this call. Now, Paul says here that it is is God who does the enabling. It was the Lord who put him into the ministry. And it's interesting how that Paul emphasizes that his calling was by the grace of God. And that this is a calling that he never would have chosen for himself. Now back again, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Look at verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer 
and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now you look at this man, Saul. He was everything that he shouldn't have been. Everything in his natural heart was wrong. All of it was against God. God had to change him to make him worthy. And I think that every true pastor of the gospel of Christ must be humbled by this. That God would choose us when we are so unworthy. I think the overarching teaching of this passage is that the grace of God overcomes the helplessness of what we are by the law. That embedded in this calling to ministry is the obtaining of God's mercy. I think it's very difficult to understand how that Paul would call this mercy. That the ministry that he was involved in seems to be nothing but contradictions of mercy. How can you find mercy in what happened to Paul? We probably wouldn't recognize mercy at all in the list of uh, afflictions that Paul enumerated in 2 Corinthians 11. Do you remember those where he talks about the trials that he went through? How he was beaten, he was hated, he was accosted by robbers, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was in hunger and thirstings. That's a little bit difficult to call mercy, I think. That's God's mercy. Only an enlightened mind that's been changed by the Holy Spirit of God would ever think like this. That this is the mercy of God at work with me. You know, I think Paul's outlook was much like Moses. This is what's said about Moses in Hebrews 11. It says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Now, the way that we find mercy in all of this is that mercy, it's mercy because temporary hardships are nothing compared to the eternal rewards that God gives for his service. Each hardship contains within it a promise of reward. And Paul knew that. Everything that he went through. And you know, I think it's also interesting that when Paul enumerates those things in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the shipwrecks and all of that. He comes down to the end of that and said, besides all those things, besides having the life nearly beaten out of me, he says, and the care of the churches. And it's almost like that, that he's putting that up there on the, on, the, on the same plane, on the same plane as just being physically beaten to death, that doing this job, some of the things that you have to put up with and the difficulties that you go through... That's just it's like being beaten with a stick sometimes. Only a pastor knows how people can, at the same time, applaud you and break your heart. And they don't even realize when they've done it. And that's a very, that's a very difficult thing, but here Paul calls it mercy. And that inward call helps us to rise above the trials of difficult ministry. We know this, that whatever we go through, there is a greater reward because of being faithful to, the, to our Lord. A few years ago, I was preaching on this subject, and at that time, I had on my mind, uh, I think I was talking about uh, full-time, part-time pastors, that when the Lord calls 
for this employment, there, there is no other employment that will satisfy. You can't be called by God to be a pastor and then walk away from that to become a plumber. You won't do it. Now, Paul was a tent maker by trade, but his desire was not to tent making. He only made tents when the church wasn't able to afford to support him. And that uh, making a tent, that was his means to get into and carry on the most important work that he had. He had to support himself so he could give himself to the ministry. And so I'm sure of this, that what a pastor desires more than anything, more desires at least in, in this in this area, is to be a full-time minister. He wants this as the full-time occupation so that he can devote all of his time to the Lord's work. And I firmly believe that a church should do everything it can to make that possible. To do everything they can to keep the pastor from having to claw his way through and make, make ends meet uh, the best way that he can and burden him with all the cares of a secular job. But I also realize it's not always possible to do that. Some churches are small. They can't afford to have a pastor full time. Arthur Pink had maybe a solution to that. You talk about small churches. He said, if you have 10 people in church and 10 people that tithe like they're supposed to tithe, then 10 people can support a full-time pastor. You do the math on that and you'll see how that works out. 10 people faithfully tithing could support a full-time pastor. Now, in his formula, it sounds like a pretty good formula. Unfortunately, it leaves no room for ministry needs, missions, benevolence, and some other things that you might need for ministry uh, to do it effectively. But you sort of get the picture. Maybe if you have 12 tithing faithfully, then a church could support a full-time pastor. So I think in many cases, the reason that some of the pastors can't have uh, full-time employment at the church is simply because people don't give as they should. Well, thank the Lord we don't have the problem here. But because of lack of funds or whatever reason it might be, there are bivocational pastors. They do have to get a job. And still, though they have a job, they give time to the Lord's work the best that they can. And I'll have to tell you, me standing here in the position that, I, that I'm in, I am blessed by that determination. I am blessed by that determination. Someone who wants to do this so badly and believes the Lord has called them so badly that they'll do whatever it takes to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, it can be done. It can be done in a bivocational way, but that is not the best way. And that's because doing secular work inevitably takes away from the Lord's work. And that's not what the Lord designed uh, in the New Testament. We find that, that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul said. So I remember my dad as a bivocational pastor. Uh, when he started preaching, that's the way he was. But he went full-time at the first opportunity because that was the best for the church. So the nature of the pastor's work is, is so demanding that there is no way that he can do it without a divine call. You simply cannot do this. The topics that we, that we deal with uh, have, have eternal consequences. A pastor has an unbearable weight on his shoulders because he always knows this. The Word of God says the pastor is going to give an account for your soul. And I don't even know what all that means. But I know it's pretty heavy. There, there's something pretty, pretty 
heavy about that, isn't there? That I'm going to have to give an account for your soul? Well, a pastor wants to do that in the very best way, I know. So I'm conscious of the fact that every time that I step into the pulpit here, that I'm aware I can't do this in my own strength. I need God's help. I need people praying for me. I need people praying on a daily basis that the pastor can deliver the word of God and do it faithfully. So the Lord tells us that we're under greater scrutiny because of the destiny of souls. What you, what you may miss in a sermon when I'm preaching, what you may not recognize, God always hears. Angels are in the room with us today. They witness every word that I speak. And God not only hears what's spoken, but he knows what's in the heart of the person who speaks it. He knows the motivation for what is said. Now again, God works providentially for his good pleasure. He issues an inward call, but there also must be another call involved. There's also another call. The inward call is to ministry leadership. The pastor is the under-shepherd to lead the church. And if he's to be the leader, he has to be recognized as the leader. People have to agree that the pastor is the leader of the church. And for that, there is another call. And this call, a second call, is the call of the assembly of God's people. This is the outward call. It is an outward call. This is the agreement of the church to the spiritual abilities and to the character qualifications of the man. The church agrees that the man is qualified to lead and that they will submit to his leadership. Thomas Oden, in his book, The Call to Ministry, wrote, The inward call is a result of the continued drawing or eliciting power of the Holy Spirit, which in time brings the individual closer to the church's outward call to ministry. The external call, that's the outward, is an act of the Christian community that by due process confirms the inward call. No one can fulfill the difficult role of pastor adequately who has not been called and commissioned by Christ and the church. This is why the correspondence between the inner and outer call is so crucial for both the candidate and the church to establish from the outset with reasonable clarity. Now the man who is called recognizes the inward call. I've already said that. He knows that the Holy Spirit is impressing him with the call. Only he can know that call. And so we call that a subjective call. None of you can see it. None of you feels it. None of you feels it the same way that I do. And because of that, we have a list of qualifications that are objective. There are things that we see in the Word of God that to some degree can be measured and they can be acted on. The subjective call is inward, but it's supported by the objective, outward qualifications that help give confidence to the church that the man can be issued an outward call. He can be called to the pastorate. In other words, the man who is called can't be the only one who knows it. I can't just come to you and say, hey, I've been called to pastor this church and I'm going to pastor it whether you like it or not. No, you you have to agree to that call. If he's the only one who recognizes the call, then there's danger that he's missed the call. 
or danger he's misinterpreted the call. Churches aren't infallible. Charles Spurgeon said that a church might often, might often judge after the flesh, but he said he would rather accept the opinion of the company of the Lord's people than to rely solely upon his own. And so he said, whether you value the opinion of the church really doesn't matter. No one can pastor a church without the people's consent. That outward call is the people's consent. And that puts a greater responsibility on the membership to be personally sanctified, to be spiritually skilled, to know the Word of God so that you recognize and you can righteously evaluate a man's gift. Spurgeon also said that sometimes churches will judge after the flesh. Why would they do that? Not necessarily looking at biblical qualifications, but they judge after the flesh. How might they do that? How might they make worldly judgments? Let me, let me expand on that one just a little bit. I'm getting old. My back is telling me that I'm getting old. Who knows how much time that I have left? None of us knows. Someday, this church will once again need to find a pastor. I hope it's not soon because I'm not ready to give up, you know, just just yet. But it'll happen. It always does. Someday, the church will need another pastor. And there will be some who will say when that time comes, you know, Pastor Smith was not very dynamic. He wasn't exciting. He didn't pace back and forth in the pulpit. He didn't tell too many jokes, and the ones that he did weren't very good. He rarely used lengthy illustrations. He was boring. So somebody comes along to candidate for the pastor of the church, and he's flashy. He is dynamic. He's exciting. And you haven't seen that in more than 20 years. And, and you think, you mean we could have had this? This is what it's supposed to be like? And we've been stuck all these years with that guy? And so you make a determination. And when it comes to judging for a pastor, and instead of evaluating the truth of the message, you judge the manner of the delivery, you've gone down the wrong path. When you go out of a service and you remember jokes rather than justification... And you've snacked on things rather than being sanctified. That's when you're choosing after the flesh. So when it comes time to choose a pastor, you must be prayed up. You must be snuggled up close to the Lord so that you recognize the gift. Who is the man that you're going to choose? What are the qualifications that he brings to the office? What can he give us from the word? And I'll tell you this, that when you go looking for a pastor, there are places not to look. Well, many places not to look. There are conferences that I don't go to anymore because the popular preachers were the ones who could tell the best jokes. I mean, this, this is almost inevitably, invariably true. The most popular preachers tell the best jokes. But I also notice that the best jokes are not very often accompanied with the best sermons. There's very little learned. Now, I'm not going to name any names, but there's a whole group of Baptist churches that you ought to exclude from consideration for shallow preaching and dismal doctrine. The church has the responsibility to evaluate the call. 
Spurgeon also said this to his ministerial students. The will of the Lord concerning pastors is made known through the prayerful judgment of his church. It is needful as proof of your vocation that your preaching should be acceptable to the people of God. The Bible teaches there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there's safety. Proverbs twelve fifteen, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Proverbs fifteen twenty two, without counsel purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. It takes many counselors to choose a pastor for a church. When a man has been called by the Holy Spirit to pastor the church, to preach the word, the church evaluates and agrees to the call. And that's when they issue the outward call. And that outward call is then sealed by what is known as ordination. The ordination is the appointment of the one who's called to the office. Now I'm going to end on this point here, that in the many centuries since the founding of the New Testament church, there has developed many different opinions about what it means to ordain and who is responsible to ordain. But no matter what people's opinions are, uh, the truth of it needs to be found in New Testament doctrine. And the clearest example of what ordination consists is found in Acts chapter 1. Now, if you'll just turn there, we'll try to end rather quickly. I want to show you how the apostles practiced ordination. And this is when a new apostle was chosen to replace Judas. In Acts chapter 1, this is the church meeting in the upper room just before the day of Pentecost. And after Peter went through the explanation of what happened to Judas, he told the church what the scripture said about replacing him. And so in verse number 20 of Acts chapter 1, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection." Well, Peter said that one must be ordained to become a part of the apostleship. And then going on in verse 23 to 26, they chose two candidates to consider. And then they prayed over them and they asked the Lord to show them which of those two to choose. Then verse 26, and they gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven Apostles, They gave forth their lots. Now we could debate what that was, how they did it. Whatever it means, they voted on the one that should be numbered with the apostles. And I don't think this is just a vote of the apostles. This is of the 120 that are gathered in the upper room. These are the ones that that uh, participated in the vote. Now right there is all the Bible says about the means of ordination. There's no ceremony described even though there isn't anything wrong with the ceremony. Today, ceremonies are often used, and there's sometimes an ordination council that questions the candidates. There's a process they go through. There's uh, the development over the years of many uh, ordination procedures, but not an ordination that is described in the Bible. Now, in New Testament terms, 
The ordination is the vote. It's the election of the congregation. This is the model that Baptists have used since the very beginning. As revered and respected as Charles Spurgeon was, he never went through an ordination ceremony. And so there were some who would say, well, Charles Spurgeon was never ordained to gospel ministry. But, in fact, he was chosen by his church as the pastor. And according to the scripture, that is the ordination. Now, just one more remark about ordination. Uh, It is a function of the church. Ordination is done by the church. It's done by the congregation that the man will serve. There are some who practice seminary ordination. The school that the man attends, they're the ones that ordain him to the ministry. Well, they might do that, but that's not a church ordination. It's not to a church pastorate. And then secondly, when groups of preachers get together, they may have an ordination council. Uh, Men sit on an ordination council. That's okay, but they're not the final decision makers. The church makes the final decision. An ordination council may recommend, but it may not ordain. And so the church accepts or rejects that recommendation. The council recommendations are often accepted because usually a council of preachers would know more than ordinary church members, and so that's fine. But that, that's not the final decision-making body. The church has that authority to choose the one who will lead them. Well, there is one more aspect of the call that will take time to consider. I'm not going to get into it today. We'll save it for next week. And this is the question of whether women may be ordained to become pastors of churches. What does the Bible say about women preachers? It's a good question. It's a controversial question, and one that needs to be answered correctly by the Scriptures. Well, you may ask, why do we discuss all these things? Why, why are you talking about this? Well, we do this because the church belongs to Jesus Christ We don't run the church in any other way than by the instructions that are given in the New Testament. Everything that the church does reflects on our Savior. Anything that we change from the instructions that he gave will impede both the salvation of souls and the sanctification of the Lord's church. Very simply, we need to know how to do things. And that's what we're trying to teach you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've spent together today in your word. It's necessary that we take time to look at all of the word of God, everything that's taught there. And as we're going through a study, the New Testament church, as I said in the very beginning, it is imperative and only natural that we would look at leadership. How do you give us our leaders? And we find here uh, how the word of God tells us that it's done. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. We thank you for those who've come out to hear the word of God today. And we just pray, Lord, there's anyone here who needs to know Jesus as Savior, that they would come to understand there's only one way that any person can go to heaven, and that's through belief in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No works that we could ever do. Nothing will justify us in your sight but the precious blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for all these things, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 
6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.febaptist.org.